Welcome to Youth Talk Climate, an environmental issues podcast by young people for young people. This podcast is created in association with the Alliance for Climate Education. An intricate part of the fight against climate change revolves around economics. Today, for this episode, Kali Gagan and Mario Pinacasco sit down to talk to environmental economics professor Richard Chatton. Professor Richard Chatton has been teaching environmental economics at METC for many years and is an avid piano player. Today we'll be covering topics such as what youth can do economically to help the earth and what economic policies Professor Richard would like to see implemented for the betterment of the earth. Could you briefly introduce yourself and uh, say what your job or role is? Okay, so my name is Richard Shatton. Um, I have a PhD in environment and resources, and I have master's degrees in civil and environmental engineering, applied economics, and energy analysis and policy. Um, I've been a college professor for about 25 years. Uh, I teach all the basic economics classes but I also teach classes in environmental economics, energy economics, energy and society. And I'm not, a, not really big into doing research projects. Over my 25 year career, I've done four or five of them, but because my job has always been tied to a heavy teaching load and I've worked at schools where that's my only job, I only really do research in areas that I'm interested in. In other words, in order to keep my job, I don't have to fundraise and then produce research that would encourage more people to donate to me. So in some ways, I feel fortunate that I'm insulated from the research world in the university life where you need to find the deep pockets to fund your research. And I do have to tell you that in the academic world, um, there is pressure uh, to raise money and there is implied pressure to not aggressively go after those people who have the deep pockets. So I've always felt uh, free to discuss issues with my students and in my classroom and in my writings um, that could be considered controversial. Although I would say I'm a mainstream kind of person. I don't advocate tearing down the economic system. I actually advocate following the rules for that system. But remember that politically, most people in the profit maximizing world, they perceive of academicians as either their friend or their enemy. And um, I come across as being an enemy. So environmental economics is the discipline that kind of takes inventory of the costs that are involved in economic activities and how these costs might present themselves to external markets or if I'm running a business, how could someone else's cost have an impact on my business? And then of course, the policy question is, once you 
identify externalities and you can quantify them, what are the appropriate policies that would uh, reduce these externality costs so that we could return closer to our theoretical free market system? So a very good example would be um, you go and put gasoline in your car. Now, you're paying $2.30 per gallon. But as you drive away, there's fumes that come out of your tailpipe. And those fumes um, have chemicals in them that can have an impact on the water on the side of the road, the plants that grow, the animals, the birds. It gets in the air and can actually cause pollution that can have an impact on people's health. And all of these health costs and losses in productivity actually have impacts on other markets, not just the market for gasoline and for cars and for transportations. So this is an example of what economists call a market failure. When the price of a product does not completely include all of the costs of producing and consuming that product. So who pays these prices? Non-market participants. In other words, let's say you don't own a car, you just ride a bike and you're riding your, down, your bike down the street and you're breathing in noxious gases and you end up at the emergency room because you're having problems breathing. Now, who's going to pay that bill? Either you are, or if you don't have the money, it's going to be absorbed by the healthcare system, and everyone else's health insurance bills are going to go up. So for someone to say pollution laws are an infringement on the right to buy and sell gasoline ignores the fact that the buying, the selling, and the consumption of gasoline actually is an infringement on someone else's right to have clean air. So understand that if you believe in the free market system, environmental laws are not an infringement on markets. They're there to ensure that markets operate according to the laws of free market principles. So many of the theories and the quantitative methods demonstrate that prevention actually is less expensive in terms of resources than trying to clean up the problem later. But I mean, the reason why we're having this conversation right now is because you're interested in climate change. So climate change, as you guys know already, is caused uh, by a buildup of greenhouse gases in the environment. And the bulk of those greenhouse gases come from the combustion of fossil fuels. That would be coal, oil, and natural gas. Now, coal um, provides for 40% of the electricity in our country. And you know what? It was only 20 years ago that it was 65%. Oil provides for 80% of the transportation energy in our country. And it was only 20 years ago that it was 90%. Natural gas 
provides for something like 75% of heat for domestic uh, space heating and hot water, and also for commercial and industrial heat. And now natural gas also accounts for like 25% of electricity. When you do all of the additions and the aggregations, fossil fuels still account for more than three quarters of the primary energy used to provide all of the things that give us the lifestyle that we find comfortable. Heat, electricity, transportation. And so all of us are complicit in a market activity that transfers costs away from us and to the general planet. Now, sure, we are inhabitants of the planet, so we're passing costs on to ourselves. But you know, there are people all over the world that don't have the luxury of electricity and heat and transportation. Those people tend to live closer to the world's natural resource base because they don't benefit from as much modern technology which means that their livelihoods are much more closely related to things like climate. You know, when there's a flood, when the seawaters rise and the salt water intrudes on the groundwater, when you live close to the sea, when you live close to the equator, then your daily life and your ability to survive is really affected by climate change. And so there's kind of an issue of justice here that those of us who enjoy the benefits of all of this fossil fuel consumption, we do bear the cost of climate change. But many of the people who don't even enjoy a lot of benefits from the fossil fuel economy, they disproportionately bear a large amount of the economic impacts of that system. And so for some people, climate change is more an issue of overall social justice than anything else. And some of the policies that are proposed to solve this problem would be that industrialized countries, countries like the United States um, and Canada, Australia, most of Western Europe, China, the Soviet Union, um, that those countries should begin to follow the market rules and pay the true cost for the consumption and the production of fossil fuels. What that would do is it would increase the market price of electricity and gasoline which would send a signal that perhaps a different way of transporting yourself and a different way of making electricity would be more affordable. So when someone says, yeah, but it would make electricity more expensive, an environmental economist would do the calculation and say, okay, in the short term and in your location here in the United States, your cost of driving around and electrifying your home could actually go up by 10%.
But in the larger global calculation, the overall costs of everyone in the world having a higher standard of living would go down if those resources were replaced by, let's say, renewable energy. And then in the long run, even folks that live in the highly industrialized world would also benefit from healthcare cost savings from the reduction in things like air pollution and water pollution by a transition from a fossil fuel based economy to like a renewable energy based economy. What kind of solutions or policies uh, would a environmental economist like yourself recommend? Well, you know, one of the simplest policies is taxation. Um, so when you put a tax on gasoline, then people who are looking to buy a car um, understand that since gasoline is going to cost more money, maybe they should buy a car that gets better gas mileage. And right there, you could see a reduction in the amount of oil that's burned and therefore a reduction in the greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the person who buys the car might be upset that they have to buy a smaller car. They might be upset that gasoline prices went up. And from their own selfish perspective, they would be accurate to say, I have to pay a higher price for this. But even in their own life, if everyone in their community did that, the levels of um, lung cancer would go down. The levels of COPD would go down. And then in the long run across the whole planet, the financial impacts of climate change would be reduced. So it's a matter of asking yourself the question, are you willing to support a policy where you have to pay the true cost of something and that others would benefit from that? Another policy would be like what California has done, which is to phase out and eventually ban fossil fuel vehicles. Now, let's take a step back at this point. There was just a presidential election in this country, which was basically a 50-50 result. Not in California, right? In California, the more pro-environmental type candidates, they win two thirds of the vote which is why in California, it's actually feasible to pass a law to phase out fossil fuel cars. How do you think the people in Texas would respond to a proposal like that, or Florida, or Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania? I mean, they would reject it to the point where the environmental candidate would lose, and then that would, that would uh, place in jeopardy all of the environmental protection legislation. And so when crafting a policy, you have to consider political feasibility. You know, rolling taxes into a higher gasoline price, we're all accustomed to paying gasoline taxes, but still even Americans who claim that they care about the environment, they tend to balk at them having to pay something more. 
that it's always somebody else's fault, but don't charge me an extra penny. A third policy would be a requirement that the companies that produce the machines produce them in a way that is more efficient, reduces pollution, so that you and I don't have to make any decisions. And any cost increase is kind of blended into what we purchase for the car. This is the approach that many European countries have taken and that Japan has taken. In other words, the government has more uh, control over what a manufacturer can do than what millions of consumers can do. And millions of consumers get all upset when they feel that their freedom is being taken away. And so these are like three possible ways of dealing with it that different countries around the world have utilized. When speaking on like consumer habits and consumer spending, how can consumers themselves uh, through their spending help the environment? During this whole COVID-19 experience, I think that what I've learned is watching how individuals, regardless of their political persuasion, their own personal behavior actually becomes a window into how they feel about life, society, their neighbors. And much of that is um, exhibited by their purchasing behavior. Um, I remember when they were interviewing Dr. Fauci and they said to him, well, how come people won't wear masks? And he said, I don't have any way of convincing someone that you should care about your neighbor, that you should care about anybody but yourself. That's what it comes down to. When you decide to make a purchase, you could do a little bit of research. You could find out whether the product you're about to buy was made by slaves in a sweatshop in a country that has no environmental laws. There are websites out there that will guide you towards that. But if you don't take the responsibility and your only focus is what is the cheapest price to me? It's almost like you're saying that you're willing to buy goods off the back of a truck that was stolen. So what it comes down to is individuals having values that bring them to a point where they want to make purchases that include more than just the instantaneous gratification and calculus of paying this dollar for this item. I don't know how you can convince someone to not buy stolen goods off the back of a truck. But as far as I'm concerned, that purchasing something that you know is bad for the environment is akin to doing that. In other words, it's a values discussion. I don't think that you can legislate it. I would like to see those organizations who claim to represent family values, religious values, I wish they would talk more about this kind of stuff while they're preaching to people about what good behavior is. In your opinion, to increase political feasibility, 
do you need to make a cultural change or do we just need to find ways to kind of assume the as little responsibility as possible for uh, the everyday consumer? I think you've answered the question with the question. Okay, so the point is that without a cultural change that's based in a value system that expands beyond just the self, I don't think that there's a solution. Now the question becomes, how do you accomplish such a cultural change? You can't simply say, should you make a cultural change? Cultural changes can take generations. Although under crisis situations, people seem to respond and maybe make a quick change. When there's a forest fire, all of a sudden people care an awful lot about keeping their neighbors safe because it's a crisis. I think that the major change that has to take place is for people to have enough understanding of time to perceive that climate change is a crisis. And the fact that it's moving slowly because you know, you're not even 20 years old and an impact takes 20 years. It's a whole lifetime from the perspective of some people. And so they don't really perceive that it's a crisis. But if you were writing a history book 300 years from now about the way that Western civilization choked itself to death, that 50 year period could be identified as a moment in time, which was a crisis. And we would wonder what was wrong with those people? Didn't they see the train coming down the tracks and they just stayed on the tracks and before you knew it, they were pulverized by it. So I would say that through education, through brainwashing, through whatever you need to do to try to instill a sense of urgency into people so that they will act now to postpone or alleviate the final impacts of a crisis that we're all the way halfway into. I think that those would be the kinds of behaviors which maybe could alter the trajectory of the train. What message consumer and politicians, what message do you think they need to hear sort of for them to realize that they're in a state of crisis, that it has to happen now, because through political interest, self-interest, it seems that that is not happening right now. All right, so we live in a democracy where laws and policies are passed by those people that get elected. And people that get elected uh, tend to favor the status quo. They don't wanna upset the apple cart because they're worried that people will punish them if their taxes go up, if things change a little bit. And so there has to be a consensus understanding that if current politicians don't begin to treat things like a crisis, that they will be voted out of office, which means that the next generation of voters, people your age, need to speak loudly and persistently about what's going to happen to politicians that stand in the way 
of a recognition that this is a crisis. This is known as a grassroots effort. And I think that it's been pretty effective. You just can't take your foot off the pedal. When you get to the point where the majority of voting Americans are under the age of 35 or 40, because the age of consciousness is now 40, right? Um, I think that there will be a swell of political inertia that makes it almost impossible for a politician in many places to remain viable without recognizing that we're in a crisis. But if the politicians don't feel the pressure, then I think that they will be beholden to the people that donate to their campaigns from the top. Those people who don't want to see carbon taxes, who don't want to see uh, a demand that corporations do their part to solve the problem. So you doing what you're doing right now and not stopping and not letting up and making it almost second nature for people to demand a change, I think that's the way a cultural change has to happen so that it affects policy. So for youth that wants to expand their knowledge on economics through environmentalism, how can they use uh, economics to sort of champion what they're doing and champion their activism? Maybe I can sum it up in this statement. You don't have to be pro-corporate to be pro-market. You don't have to be a capitalist to be pro-market. Capitalists are people who advocate that a certain interest group within a free market should collect all of the money, those who own the capital, the machinery. You can have a free market where capitalists pay the true cost of their production. That's the argument for environmental control and environmental protection, that you can only have a true free market that actually does its job without market failure if all externality costs are accounted for. So for someone who's not a communist, who believes in private property and free enterprise, the argument has to be it's not free enterprise if people cheat, if people steal. And that's basically what pollution is. Pollution is thievery. Pollution is taking your waste products and instead of paying for them to be disposed, when no one's looking, you simply belch them out into the air and spew them into the water. Like it could have cost you a million dollars to clean up, I mean, to prevent the pollution. But once it's out there, it costs society a billion dollars to either clean it up or bear the impacts of it. Which is more efficient, a million dollars up front or a billion dollars down the line? It's the study of economics that allows one to make that calculation and then try to convince policymakers that requiring that companies do not spew poison 
that does not interfere with free market, that protects free markets. So in your opinion as, as an economist, is Wall Street good for the environment or is it bad? What are some pros and what are some cons? Okay, so I look at it this way. Um, most corporations are formed, organized, and operated for the primary purpose of generating a profit stream. Um, they have what's known as a fiduciary responsibility to their stockholders to try to maximize profit. They are simply a rat in a maze following the cheese. If you want to affect a change, you have to change the maze. They're still going to do what they need to do to maximize profit. So what is Wall Street? Wall Street is simply a casino where people that are interested in trying to make money, they gamble on the different rats. So if there's a company that looks like it's going to make a lot of money, people are more interested in buying stock in that company because one, they are now an owner of the company and they receive a portion of the profits. And number two, if other people continue to believe that that company is going to be strong, the value of the stock they bought could go up in the future and they could then you could then sell that stock and you could make a capital gains by doing that as well. So I do not see Wall Street as a positive or a negative. I perceive of it as an accelerant. Wall Street provides an opportunity for people that don't work to gamble on companies that produce profits and people that work for those companies. If it weren't for Wall Street though, it might be difficult for a company to raise the money that it needs um, to build infrastructure. Because when a company decides to open itself up to the public investing in it, you know, they sell their shares of stock. And that initial purchase of stock allows the company to gather resources. So I would say that how you feel about Vegas should be how you feel about Wall Street. Some people think it's an utter waste of time for the most brilliant people in the country to spend their lives sitting at a roulette table, that that's wasted resource. Yeah. There's no way to outlaw Wall Street. You know, there's no way it's ever going to go away. And so once again, I think that the policy goal should be if there's truly a penalty that a company would have to pay for being dirty, what would that do to their profit stream and the value of the company in the future? And so by making violations of environmental laws something that companies truly have to pay a steep price for, Wall Street accelerates that perception of risk. And now companies have to behave better or else analysts in Wall Street will spread the word that this is not a good company to invest in. Since the owners of the company tend to own the most amount of shares of stock in that company, they don't want to encourage the wrath of a group of people that understand that violating environmental laws 
could be a death sentence for the financial future of your company. So instead of asking, is Wall Street good, is Wall Street bad, should it go away? Maybe the question should be, how can environmentalists use the undeniable power of people gambling on things to help accelerate the message that there's a price to be paid for violating environmental laws. Right. So to uh, clarify, the way to create change within uh, the private sector is to affect their bottom line through regulations or through governments or well, through, how, I how think, you... yeah, taxation, uh, regulations, and penalties. But you have to understand that they don't want to be regulated. So they will use their money to help elect people that will minimize how much they get regulated. And they will make arguments like, well, if we get regulated, the price of your nachos is going to go up. Or we'll have to shut down some nacho stores and you'll lose your job. The truth, though, is that if they're not regulated, you could lose your life, right? And so their whole purpose for avoiding regulation is to maximize their profit. So what morality towards climate change should businesses adopt in the future, even to small business owners, to giant corporations? How should they adapt their way of earning profits, manufacturing, and employment to be more sustainable? All right, I think there's a couple answers to that. The first one would be that you have to understand that you can't require a moral or a cultural change, okay? However, as younger people who tend to be more sympathetic with environmental initiatives begin to work their way up the corporate ladder, that could provide kind of like a cultural perspective change in a company. But you have to understand that the company is still going to be focused on maximizing profit. So one area where those two things converge is the idea of green branding. So our company is going to try to present itself to the consumer as the environmentally conscious company, Whole Foods, you know, the energy company that buys wind turbines, the company that only uses, you know, recycled material in their packaging. Now, the important thing is, is to hold them to the fire, to make sure they're not misrepresenting what they're really doing. If they're simply using an environmental message as window dressing, while they're still doing things that are horrible for the environment, horrible for their labor force, they need to be exposed, which is why the internet is such a great thing. It's one thing to make a claim on the internet that's a conspiracy theory. It's another to post videos, to post testimonials, to post evidence, and then change people's perceptions about whether a company truly is an environmentally friendly company or not. When the message becomes clear that environmentally dirty companies 
are less likely to make profit because more people will avoid their products, then a cultural change can take place. But remember what I said, we just had an election in this country and half the population basically said, we don't care, just give us the cheapest nacho. So you have to go into this with your eyes wide open to what the reality of the American population is. Um, you can't actually ask the question, should we change people's culture? Should we change their morality? You have to work with who people are and what they are. That's why change takes generations. And when it comes to environmentalism and the funding of environmental studies, how is this, is funding of environmental studies by large corporations, is that a, is that a danger? Is I think it's dangerous because I know that corporations are organized for a primary purpose, which is to maximize profit. If they're spending money to fund a program, there's a underlying motivation in it. I think that um, corporate donations to universities that then allocate money without an expectation that a study is going to produce a desired outcome, that model is safer than direct payments to researchers. But I actually think that the best model is that general taxes that are collected in order to provide um, adequate funding for educational institutions with no interference from politicians or corporations and then uh, people are given the opportunity to do their work, present their work in front of their peers where there's peer-to-peer -peer review and simply the search for the truth is the way to do things. I think that that's the safest way uh, to fund an environmental studies program. Unfortunately, um, the academic world that we now live in is one where state governments are pressed for money and so they cut the funding for universities and then tell universities that if you really have something of value, you should be able to sell it. Therefore, go to the marketplace and find a funder. And so if you're doing research on energy. Who's got the deep pockets to fund your research? Well, the wind industry has some deeper pockets these days, so maybe they can fund you. But what if you have something to tell about wind that they don't want to hear? Or nuclear? Or petroleum? Or coal? So I actually think that treating research just like another factory or industry that needs to support itself by generating a profit is antithetical to the search for truth. As you became an environmental economist, uh, what brought you towards that field? I'm a piano bar player. And before I went to grad school, um, I had a job at a very, very exclusive fancy restaurant where the people that sat around the piano had a lot of money. 
and they threw a lot of money at me. And I would get into little arguments, good-natured arguments, with owners of factories who had the money to pay the piano player. And I mean, this is what I look like now, 30 years later. But back then, my beard was twice as long, my hair was out to here. And they seemed to enjoy arguing with like the hippie folk singing piano player at the piano bar. And I was always arguing about the integrity of the planet. And they were always arguing about how, well, if it weren't for them and their their HVAC manufacturing system, we wouldn't have this restaurant. And I certainly wouldn't be getting another $20 bill in my tip jar. And I remember getting to a point where I, I thought, you know, I need a better argument with these people than just rhetoric, than just, you know, gazing at the sky and saying, but I know that this is right because my muse tells me that. And I think that that's what sent me to graduate school. Remember, I was no longer searching for truth. I'm now looking for science and fact. So I came to the University of Wisconsin to study the environment. And it was my first semester that it became clear to me that without the tools that economists use to analyze the marketplace, I didn't have a chance in winning one of these arguments. I mean, how can you make an argument to a guy that owns an HVAC company who installs things that utilize energy, that installing a system that would be more efficient by recycling heat would be in the best interest of his clients, even though that system would cost his clients 10% more. Well, you need to demonstrate that over a period of time, those clients would actually save money on their electric bills. So if you can appeal to a profit maximizer about how they could sell their product better if it was more efficient, and the side effect would be that there's an environmental savings. Well, this kind of stuff enthralled me. And I began to do research about recycling, recycled materials, plastic and cardboard and metal. And that really brought me into the recycling of energy and heat. Um, each step of the way, where I became enthralled with a particular energy system, a particular technology, the question of, but how much does it cost? How much would it save a consumer? And could we calculate the externality cost savings to non-market participants? Every single time that became the topic that I was most interested in and that the instructor or the professor of the class didn't have an answer to and would say, you should write a paper about that. You should research that. That's really important stuff. And before I knew it, that's what I was doing in every class and in every program that I was in. And then I began to simply, you know, build a reputation for the person who could do the calculations for externality costs and make an argument that spending a little more in the present could save a lot more for society in the long run. That's what seduced me into studying environmental economics.
Yeah, well put. Um, are there any final remarks or any final messages you'd like to give our listeners? Yeah, don't give up hope. Change takes time. And once you emerge as a member of society with power and money, which might not be for 20 years, don't forget where you started and why you got involved in politics. Don't treat this argument as if it's just a phase you're going through. Because only when the people who control the means of production decide to have a longer term view about the health of their company, the health of their community, and the health of the planet, will decisions be made that are in the best interest of not just your immediate short-term pocketbook, but in the long run. So don't forget, don't give up. Talk about it with your friends all the time and don't let your podcast simply evaporate into cyberspace someplace. Keep it alive. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Mario, do you have anything else to say? Um, I would just like to thank you very much for coming uh, and taking the time out of your day to talk with us about just all these different subjects that we covered today. Well, thank you for inviting me. And uh, yeah, send me a copy of your finished product. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Youth Talk Climate. A huge thanks to our guest, Professor Richard Shatton. Youth Talk Climate is created by a group of Youth Action Fellows from the Alliance for Climate Education. These fellows are Sophie Smith, Callie Gagan, Julian Aranas, Sela Milfred, Lizzie Morales, and Mario Kanakasco. You can find Youth Talk Climate on Instagram at Youth Talk Climate. Thank you very much. <laughs>